while ancient historians, including those whom God used to bring forth his word, often communicated past events through stories. You can think, I'm sure, of many stories from Scripture uh, that have held with you, have stayed with you over the years. While those historians have often communicated through stories in the past, storytelling is a distinct medium. Storytelling is a distinct medium. And God's Word contains many examples of this storytelling. Think with me about two of these. First of all, consider the storytelling done by the prophet Nathan in the book of 2 Samuel chapter 12, verses 1 through 4. It goes like this. We'll have it here on the screen for you. 2 Samuel chapter 12, verses 1 through 4. There were two men in a certain city, the one rich and the other poor. The rich man had very many flocks and herds, but the poor man had nothing but one little ewe lamb, which he had bought. And he brought it up. He brought that lamb up and it grew up with him and with his children. It used to eat of his morsel and drink from his cup and lie in his arms. And that little lamb was like a daughter to him. Now, there came a traveler to the rich man, and he, the rich man, was unwilling to take one of his own flock or herd to prepare for the guest who had come to him. But he took the poor man's lamb and prepared it for the man who had come to him. That almost sounds like a parable Jesus might tell, doesn't it? It almost sounds like that. But unlike most of Jesus' parables... This story was a retelling of an historical event. It was a way of communicating a historical event. That is, through this tale, or though this tale of the two men and a little lamb was invented, it was concocted, though it was invented, it spoke powerfully about real people and a real injustice. You remember the story? Do you remember why it was told? Its connection. So at at that point, uh, and this idea of how it was connected to history was definitely not lost on King David. It was not lost on King David. The actual rich man targeted here in the storyteller's crosshairs. Now, earlier in the Bible, if we were to rewind in the Bible uh, several hundred years, we would meet another storyteller in the book of Judges. His name is Jotham. Jotham. He was the son of Gideon. You may have heard of Gideon. When his power-hungry brother Abimelech treacherously kills the rest of their brothers, Jotham escapes and declares a story to the leaders of the city of Shechem. It's a story that begins like this. The trees once went out to anoint a king over them. That's Judges chapter 9, verse 8. The trees once went out to anoint a king over them. The story goes on to describe how, when asked, the olive and fig trees, even the vine, would not become king over the other trees. They refused. They were too busy. Only the thorny bramble bush would agree to rule over the other trees or plants. Now, like Nathan's story, 
though it is a creatively crafted tale, it communicates very important ideas about real people and events, specifically about Abimelech, Jotham's brother. Right? It communicates truths about Abimelech, his corrupt character. He's this thorny bramble bush. It communicates truth about the foolishness of the people of Shechem who were looking to a leader like this for their quote-unquote shade. Notice that it's also distinct from Nathan's story in that it uses what we might call fantastical elements. Did you notice those? In this case, the story involves talking trees. They are trees who want a king to come and rule over them. They're seeking a leader to lead them. So why this concern? Why this little review of some of the storytelling in the Bible? Well, this morning, I'd like us to focus in on Genesis chapter 3, verses 1 through 7. But before we do that, let me suggest an idea that may seem strange to you at first. Let me suggest that what we find here in Genesis 2 through 3 is not just a story from the Bible, but the work of a storyteller. The work of a storyteller. Yes, like some of the stories I just mentioned, but also different, unique in many ways. Specifically, I believe this is a storyteller's take on history. A storyteller's take on history. What exactly does that mean? It means this. Genesis 2 through 3, Genesis 2 and 3, these chapters are the work of a divinely inspired storyteller, a storyteller who wanted to communicate to his readers important ideas about actual people, places, and events. But like Nathan and Jotham, he did so through a storytelling medium. I'm stressing this point with you because many people hear the word storytelling and immediately think of fiction and fantasy, not history. Fiction and fantasy over history. And that, of course, is understandable when you hear the, that word storytelling. But Scripture is crystal clear that the story in Genesis 2 through 3 is teaching us about actual people, places, and events. For example... Adam is included in three different genealogies throughout Scripture. Two of those in the Old Testament, one in the New Testament. Take a look here. The Apostle Paul confirmed for us as well in Acts 17, 26, that God made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth. Right? That's not up for debate. We know that God had created that man. And, and Paul, later in his letters, not in the book of Acts, but in his letters like Romans chapter 5, 1 Corinthians 15, Paul identifies this man as Adam. Adam. And he makes it clear that though the woman was deceived and became a transgressor, 1 Timothy 2.14, it was, Romans 5.14, the transgression of Adam that sank our world into sin and death. So the New Testament confirms for us these are real people, right? These are real situations that we're just talking about here. 
But why talk about Genesis 2 through 3 as the work of a storyteller rather than an historian? The storytelling of Nathan, the storytelling of Jotham, as two examples that I provided for you, are set in historical narratives. You can read before and after them, and you can see that that kind of writing is called historical narrative. You can read it that way. So it's explicitly clear when you're reading there from the context when that shift from narrative to storytelling takes place. Do we find that here in Genesis chapter 2, that shift? We don't see it explicitly like we see in those other examples I provided for you. But what we do find are clues. Clues from the text itself. These are the kinds of clues I believe that most people in most cultures in most centuries would recognize if you run across these, these are indications that you are listening to the work of a storyteller. Not just an historical account. So I see at least seven clues like that in Genesis 2 through 3. Now, given our time limitations, I'm going to try to real briefly summarize, summarize these for you. I could, could spend an hour talking about each of these. I'll give you more information, though, at the end of the message. Clue number one, okay? These are our clues to alert us to what we're reading in Genesis 2 through 3. Clue number one, readers and scholars have long noted there's a difference between the creation account in Genesis 1 and the creation account in Genesis 2. In Genesis 1, you have a God who is above all things, who is outside of all things. He simply speaks, let there be, and all things come into existence according to his order and his plan, according to his vast power. But when you arrive at chapter 2, you now have God depicted as a kind of divine craftsman on the job site. Later in chapter 3, it says that the man and the woman could hear him walking. They could hear him walking. Here's the divine craftsman at the job site. He is shaping now things with almost his hands like the dust and the ground and even a rib. He is shaping these things, even breathing into them to give life. That's an indication that a shift has taken place here in the kind of what we're in the kind of storytelling that's taking place. Clue number two, chapter two, verse seven describes this divine craftsman shaping man from the dust. You know this. But readers today and back then, readers know that we are really not made of anything like dust or dirt. It's not how human beings are. Dust is dry, dirt is hard, the ground is hard, but we are for the most part, whether we like it or not, soft and slimy, pretty much, right? Soft and slimy. So, this sounds like a storyteller's poetic depiction that we have here in Genesis 2. Clue number three, though we may not be familiar with the geographical details in chapter 2 verses 10 through 14, and you can just look over those if you'd like to, 
Those geographical details in 2, 10 through 14 concerning the river of Eden that flowed through Eden. Eden was the land, by the way. It wasn't the garden. The land was called Eden. A garden was planted in that land. That's why it's called the Garden of Eden. So a river was running through Eden and it ran right through the garden. And when it came from the garden, it split into four rivers. Now the details there, many of those details would have been familiar to the original readers, the ancient readers of Genesis. But they would have also read that and they would know and understand that those details were geographically problematic. They were problematic with where those rivers start and finish, where they go. And so that would have been a clue to them that we're really dealing here more with a kind of spiritual geography. The emphasis is on the spiritual rather than the geographical. Clue number four, when trees in this story, specifically two, when trees in this story are given names like of life, And of the knowledge of good and evil, when you have trees given names like that, that's usually a clue that these are not literal trees, but literary devices used by the storyteller simply to represent those critical concepts, right? You label the trees because they represent as ideas in the story what you're trying to focus on of life, of the knowledge of good and evil, Clue number five. So that idea following up from clue number four, that idea is confirmed by how the fruit of those trees has what we might call quote unquote magical properties. Quote unquote, I'm emphasizing that for you. (laughs) Magical properties. What do I mean by quote unquote magical properties? Notice how in the story, as you might have read this past week, that simply eating the fruit opens one's eyes. Simply eating the fruit imparts immortality to the one who is eating of it. The fruit itself is imbued with a kind of power to affect something. So I believe the first readers of Genesis, like I believe we would do today, we know God's world, we know how he created the world, we know how the world works, And of course, this is the world created in Genesis chapter 1, this world right here, right? Not a different world. This is the world created in Genesis chapter 1. This world, we know how it works. And so when we read something like this, we can recognize it as a clue that we're listening to a storyteller's take on history. Clue number six, probably most revealing in terms of fantastical elements One of the characters in this story is a talking snake. He's a talking snake. No, I don't believe that Genesis, I don't believe that any book of the Bible tells us this was Satan. You might have heard that. I don't believe that's true. Given the threat that snakes represented to those ancient readers and the fact that snakes don't talk, we know that, we already, we understand that. The first readers of Genesis understood this as well. 
I think this snake is simply an excellent choice by the storyteller who is crafty, like Jotham might have chosen trees for his story to be able to communicate historical truth in a powerfully creative way. I believe the same thing is happening here. The storyteller has chosen a snake to represent the deception and danger of sin, the temptation of sin. Interestingly, in the very next chapter, chapter 4, verse 7, sin is also talked about figuratively. And specifically, it's described there as a deadly animal crouching, ready to pounce and attack. So the very next chapter, we have sin represented figuratively as an animal. Here we have something very similar in Genesis chapter 3. Clue number seven. When cherubim are mentioned in the Bible, they are number one, never called angels. They're not angels. Number two, they are always talked about in representational or symbolic or visionary settings. This could be the only exception, Genesis 2, but it would be the only exception in the Bible because they, they don't ever appear in other narrative contexts. They're always in visionary settings. They're always represented as statues on top of the ark or embroidered into the side of the tabernacle or whatever it might be. They're always associated with the throne of God as well. They surround the throne. They carry the throne. The psalmist talks about God riding a cherub down, right, from the clouds almost. This beautiful poetic description of these heavenly attendants who are at the throne of God. Ezekiel chapter 1 is another good place to look at the depiction there, symbolic depiction of cherubim. So if that tells us something about how ancient people thought about cherubim, then their appearance here in chapter 3, verse 24, that might also be a clue to us that Genesis 2 through 3 is the work of an ancient storyteller who is talking to us about God's enthroned presence represented in the garden, this idea of the garden. Now, notice what I've done. Please notice what I've done here. I've used clues from the text, and in light of the testimony of all Scripture, I have tried to make a case for seeing Genesis 2 through 3 as a unique kind of story. A storyteller's take on history, historical but highly figurative. Historical but highly figurative. So I want to be very clear about that approach, the approach I've taken. I want to do that in order to curb anyone who's tempted to label other parts of Scripture willy-nilly as storytelling without carefully making a case making a case based from based on the context and the broader context of the bible itself people can be tempted when they run across something in scripture that sounds weird to them they might say ah this is just symbolic right it's all symbolic and they kind of dismiss it right away that way but they don't make a case for it well that's not what we do when we handle the scriptures does it ultimately matter if you see this as more of a storyteller's take on history or as a straightforward historical account? I don't believe it does really matter. I don't think that it really does matter. I think good scholars and faithful Christians have reached different conclusions, and that's okay. 
that they come to different conclusions as long as we are allowing Scripture to drive the conversation, as long as we are holding fast to the foundational teachings, those that are clearly and regularly taught in God's Word, I think exploring ideas like these can actually be really helpful. It forces us into this story and really forces us to grapple with it and think carefully about it. When, if we don't do that, sometimes we've just heard a traditional understanding of a passage and we just, we just take it as face value and say, oh yeah, yeah, that's just the way it is. But we haven't done the hard work of actually getting into that passage and really thinking carefully about it. You may land somewhere else than where I'm landing on this, but I think, like I said, good Christians, faithful scholars have disagreed over these things, but are still holding fast to the historicity of what's being taught here and how foundational this is to our faith. Now, look with me on that note to Genesis chapter 3, verses 1 through 7. That was a very long introduction to getting to the passage itself. But I want you to hear it now, maybe with a different take, and say, okay, what was Pastor talking about? This is an interesting way to think about this. Let me step back and look at it from this way now that I've heard this, probably one of the most famous you know, stories in all of Scripture, in all of Western culture, in all of human history. Let's hear it now, Genesis 3, 1 through 7. This is what we read. Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that Yahweh God had made. He said to the woman, did God actually say, you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, we may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said, you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst or middle of the garden, neither shall you touch it lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, you, you will not surely die. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, when she saw that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. And she also gave some to her husband who was with her. And he ate. Then the eyes of both were opened. And they knew that they were naked. And they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. So, okay, what should we do with this well-known story? What should we do with it? Let me remind you of this. Let me remind you that the woman, in her response to the serpent in verses 2 and 3, do you see that? What is she doing? She's pointing us back to chapter 2. Look with me back at chapter 2, verses 15 through 17. She's pointing us back there. This is what we find there, chapter 2, verses 15 through 17. Yahweh God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden. Let me stop right there real quickly. I'm talking about Genesis 2 and 3 in a very unique way as a storyteller's take on history. One of the reasons that Genesis 2 and 3 stands as a distinct unit in the whole book of Genesis, those two chapters, is because this name, the Lord God, Yahweh Elohim, is only found in these two chapters. It's used about 20 times in these two chapters 
and never again in the rest of the five books of Moses. Actually once in Exodus 9 in one verse. So either Yahweh or Elohim is used throughout the rest of the, of the five books of Moses, but never Yahweh Elohim, the Lord God. They're only found in these two chapters. Interesting, right? Interesting that it's, it's just in Genesis 2 and 3. So Yahweh Elohim took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and to keep it. And Yahweh Elohim commanded the man, the Lord God commanded the man saying, you may surely eat of every tree of the garden. Stop and linger on that for a minute. Because we want to kind of jump ahead, don't we, to what's coming. But listen to the power and the beauty of that first statement. You may surely eat of every tree in the garden. It's yours. It's available to you. The bounty, the abundance, everything for you. But of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. Now, I am pointing you back from Genesis 3 to Genesis 2 as the woman pointed us back. I'm pointing you back to those verses because I think they contain the key to making sense of this entire story. If you want to know what this story is about, it's about this right here. This is the key to the whole story of Eden. The key to this story is the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. But what precisely does that tree represent? It does not simply represent knowing what is good and evil. We know that it doesn't represent that because the man and the woman know what is right and wrong. They know it to the extent that the woman can tell the serpent what's right and wrong. She communicates to the serpent, doesn't she? This is what's right. This is what wrong, what's wrong. This we're allowed to do. This we're not allowed to do. So we know it's not simply a knowledge of what is right and wrong. So what does this knowledge of good and evil mean? Well, let's use those key words, knowledge, good, evil, and we'll use those to look for insights from the Hebrew Bible. If we do that, we're, we're going to discover two verses. Deuteronomy 139. Deuteronomy 139 and Isaiah 7, 15 and 16. I'll put both, we'll put both of those up on the screen for you. Isaiah, sorry, Deuteronomy 139 and Isaiah 7, 15 through 16. We know Isaiah 7, 14 about Emmanuel. It's a great Christmas verse. These are the next verses about the child that was born there in 8th century BC Israel. Both of these verses speak about this kind of knowledge of good and evil in relation to Children, do you see that? Children, they both have to do with children. That, that's really fitting though for Genesis because the man and the woman there are described pretty much as days old. And like little children, little, little kids, they're not ashamed of running around naked. Right? That's what our first parents were like. So this fits perfectly with this idea here of children. So like our first parents, most children can also tell you what is right and wrong. They can give you a list. I shouldn't do this. I should do this. But look at Isaiah 7, 15 through 16. That speaks more specifically about knowing how to refuse the evil and choose the good. How to refuse the evil and choose the good. That kind of knowledge. And that's not simply understanding the content of good and evil. I think that speaks to understanding something about the nature of good and evil. The consequences of good and evil. So think about 
that idea in the context of this story from Genesis 2 through 3. God has provided a garden full of ways to communicate the goodness of what is good. Let me say that again. God in this story has provided a garden full of ways to communicate the goodness of what is good. Abundant, rich. Provision, abundance, life. It's all there. The best provision, of course, is his own presence with the first man and woman. But he has also communicated to them the evilness of what is evil. He hasn't simply given them a list of right and wrong. He's communicated to them about the goodness of what is good and the evilness of what is evil. For in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. Or you must surely die. Another translation. So the contrast between the knowledge God has imparted to them and that what the tree will impart creates a tension in this passage. You see that? It creates a tension. And here's that tension. Take a look. Will we trust what God has revealed? Another screen. Next, next screen. We'll put it up there for you. There it is. Will we trust what God has revealed about the goodness of what is good and the dangers of what is evil? Or will we listen to the voice of temptation and obtain that knowledge the hard way? By stepping away, believing we can stand on our own, only to find quicksand under our feet. Do you believe God? Or are you going to learn the hard way? Two ways the knowledge of good and evil comes to us. Consider that personally. Take that to heart for a moment, this statement. Do we trust God when He says, this is good and this is the reason why? This is evil and this is the reason why. Choose this, don't choose this. Drink this sin, reject this. Or do we sit here today casualties of stepping out on our own, choosing our own path, coming to understand this, but in a way that was painful and costly. See why God's trying to protect them? You see see how He's trying to safeguard them? Genesis chapter 3, verse 22. Look at Genesis 3, 22. It tells us there that the serpent was in some sense right in verse 5. That's why the serpent is described as so crafty. Because he's using truth, but he's twisting it just slightly. He's just leaving little things out. He's just, yeah. He's right in some sense. We have become like God in knowing good and evil. Uh, that's not me saying that. God himself says that in ch- chapter 3, verse 22. We have become like God, knowing good and evil. But that newly acquired human knowledge of the goodness of good and the evilness of evil is always obtained at a horrific price. It was gained not by trusting, but by trespassing. That's how we came about that knowledge. By stepping away from God and stepping over that line that He drew in order to protect us. The story is completely clear if you keep reading past where our main text is in Genesis chapter 3. The story is abundantly clear. The consequences of stepping away from God and over that line are absolutely devastating. Peril, strife, pain, toil, and ultimately death. 
Why, why those consequences? Because knowledge through trespasses, through trespass, instead of trusting, knowledge through trespass is fundamentally at its heart, at its core, a rejection of God. It's rejecting God. And therefore, when you reject God, you reject what the garden represents in this story. His wonderfully abundant provision of life. Life. And what have we been doing ever since? Looking for life in all the wrong places. Foolishly grasping at straws for what we think will give us life. If we think about the very first readers of Genesis, then we begin to understand why the storyteller may have shaped this story the way that he did. His storyteller's take on history. So Genesis through Deuteronomy, if you read those books, they're often called the five books of Moses. Or in Greek, we say that Pentateuch, the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Bible. When you read those books, it becomes clear that Moses is the central person in all of these. He's not mentioned in Genesis, but it becomes clear that he's put these kind of books together. He's, he's heard, he's recorded, he's heard from God, he's recording things, he's compiling things, he's conveying these stories, these laws, census data, etc., all the things that we find in these books. Moses. When we recognize that, his authorship, the first readers of Genesis come into view. Who was the first audience to the book of Genesis? Well, they were the younger generation of Israelites who were liberated from Egypt, the ones who had grown up wandering in the desert because of their parents' unbelief. Numbers 14. Why is Deuteronomy called what it's called? Deuteronomy, Deuteronomy's second law. It means it's the second giving of the law for the younger generation once all the old fogies kick the bucket. Right? They died in the wilderness. And now the young people are ready to take possession of the promised land. Now, if we know that, listen to this. Keep this in mind. Listen and see if you hear any echoes from Eden in the final line of Moses' final appeal in the final book of the Pentateuch. Deuteronomy chapter 30 Verses 11 through 20. Again, why might the storyteller have shaped the story of Genesis 2 and 3 the way that he did? Look at this. For this commandment that I command you today, says Moses, is not too hard for you. Neither is it far off. It's not in heaven that you should say, who will ascend to heaven for us and bring it to us that we may hear it and do it? No, 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 no. Neither is it beyond the sea that you should say, who will go over the sea for us and bring it to us that we may hear it and do it? But the word is very near you. It is in your mouth and in your heart so that you can do it. See, I have set before you today life and good, death and evil, If you obey the commandments of Yahweh your God that I command you today by loving Yahweh your God, by walking in His ways, by keeping His commandments and His statutes and His rules, then you shall live and multiply and Yahweh your God will bless you in the land that you are entering to take possession of it. 
But if your heart turns away and you will not hear, but are drawn away to worship other gods and serve them, I declare to you today that you will surely perish. You shall not live long in that land that you are going over the Jordan to enter and possess. I call heaven and earth to witness against you today that I have set before you life and death, blessing and curse. Therefore, choose life that you and your offspring may live loving Yahweh your God, obeying His voice, holding fast to Him, For He is your life and length of days. That you may dwell in the land that Yahweh swore to your fathers, to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob to give to them. Wow. Why this story the story, why was this story, the storyteller's take on history that we find in Genesis 2 through 3, why was it so important for the original audience of Genesis, those first readers? Because it taught them about the ancient roots of their sin and suffering. This is where it all came from. This is why you struggle the way that you do. This is what you're going through. This is why the world is the way that it is. These are the ancient roots of your sin and suffering. And our sin and suffering, right? The ancient roots of our sin and suffering. It reminded them, Genesis 2-3 through 3 reminded them about the devastating consequences of rejecting the commandment or the word of God. Best of all, it pointed them, this story pointed them to the one who is our life and length of days. You see, this God was about to give these Israelites a land in which he would bless them, a land described in Genesis chapter 13, verse 10, as well-watered everywhere like the garden of Yahweh. See the connection? But if they would not hear, if they were drawn away to worship other gods, they would be, according to Leviticus chapter 20, verses 22 and 24, they would be expelled from that place of abundance. Kicked out. Banished from that land. The story in Genesis chapter 2, Genesis chapter 3, confirmed for them that God had and indeed would again Bring this kind of judgment upon any who by rejecting His perfect Word foolishly rejected His incomparable presence and provision. Now there's a whole bunch we go into about the parallels between the tent of meeting, the tabernacle, and the garden of Eden that would strengthen this idea and you could really see the connection between the two. But in light of all of this, listen to these sobering but very practical verses written for Christians and found in Hebrews chapter 3. Take a look on the screen. Hebrews chapter 3, verses 12 through 13. It says this, Take care, brothers and sisters. Take care, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the living God. But... Exhort one another every day as long as it is called today. A reference to the psalm that he's quoted earlier in the context. 
that none of you may be hardened by the what? The deceitfulness of sin. Like the woman in the garden, our first mother, all of us. Like that woman, all of us know the voice of that serpent, don't we? We all know the voice of that serpent. Hebrews 3.13, in, in this passage, he goes by a clearer name, the deceitfulness of sin. The deceitfulness of sin. And how does sin want to deceive us? By lying to us about God and His perfect provision. It wants to deceive us by lying to us about God and His perfect provision. That's what the garden story is teaching us. Sin says, you shouldn't listen to God. You shouldn't listen to His Word. You shouldn't believe Him. He doesn't have your best interest in mind. He's keeping things from you. Did you hear that in the story? He's keeping things from you. He doesn't want you to have it all. He doesn't want you to be all that you can be. As wise as you can be. He doesn't want you to be as happy as you can be. Trust your eyes instead. Trust what you see instead. Trust your gut. Trust what's a delight to you. If you, delight, if you delight in something and you like something and you want something, but God says no, go with your gut instead. There's something better, says this deceitfulness of sin. There's something better in what you can take for yourself than what has already been offered or given to you by God. Brothers and sisters, friends, please just stop for a moment. And consider in what ways, in what areas, you are hearing the serpent's voice this morning. It's true for every single one of you. This is not a point of application that you should be looking around saying, Oh, I really hope such and such is hearing this. Oh, I know somebody really needs to hear this message today. Yeah, I bet that person... Oh, I'm going to share this message on YouTube with somebody who really needs to hear it because they are totally deceived in their sin. Friends, this is all of us. We're all deceived by sin. Right? And maybe you're so deceived this morning you don't even know that you're deceived. But I can tell you, you are deceived. And God is trying to rouse you because He is a loving and good God. He is a kind God this morning. He is trying to rouse you and wake you up so that you can see and recognize the voice of this serpent. Recognize the, recognize the voice. Understand that these are truly lies. We need to revisit Eden often, don't we? We need to revisit the garden often because God is calling us through these stories. Just like the first readers, He's calling us to remember the truth about who He is about what He gives, about how sin lies to us. How do we know the serpent's lies are lies? First, two reasons. First, because all of us now have the knowledge of good and evil. Unlike our first parents. All of us have the knowledge of good and evil right now. Though we often deny it, 
though we often try to twist it, though we live imperfectly in light of it, if you are honest, you know all too well the goodness of what is good and the ugliness, the emptiness, the danger of what is evil. You know that deep down. And yet you choose emptiness. I choose danger. I choose deception because it's more comfortable for me. That's what a sinner does. And I recognize the goodness of what is good, but at times I find myself not wanting it and actually just praying, God, give me a desire for what is good because I see here on the outside how good it is, how blessed it, how blessed it is, the blessing of it. That's number one, because we all... How do we know the serpent lies? The serpent's lies are lies, in fact, because we all have that knowledge of good and evil now. But second, God has given us ultimate reassurance. Please hear this. He has given us ultimate reassurance. He has proven that He is not keeping anything from us by giving to us that which was most precious to Him. Do you need reassurance in light of the garden story? Look to the cross. He isn't the man. We're talking about His only Son. That's not the man who fell and died. It's the man who died and rose. And you and I can choose life by choosing to fix our eyes daily on the One who said, I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. Take a look there in the screen. John chapter 10, verse 10. I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. Jesus brings the promise of the garden to us. For He and He alone withstood the deceitfulness of sin. Hebrews 3.13 Being tempted as we are, yet without sin. Hebrews 4.15 In His death, Jesus was banished, expelled, Cast out, cut off for us. But he rose again to become the last Adam, it says in 1 Corinthians 15, 45. The last Adam. Not the first Adam, the last Adam. Wonderfully, he, Jesus, is the same one. Take a look. He's the same one who made this potent promise in Revelation 2.7. To the one who conquers, who overcomes, I will grant to eat of the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. Wow. Is Christ promising us that there, that there, that a real, there will be a real tree in an earthly garden someday that will be restored to mankind? No, I don't think so. I believe the symbolic imagery at the end of the Bible that we've talked about in Revelation, that symbolic imagery functions the same way as the storyteller's creative efforts at the beginning of the Bible. The garden story powerfully points us to the gospel story. Don't separate the two. Always keep the two together. And when you do, as we do, Glory with me, brothers and sisters. Glory with me in Romans 5.17. Take a look. For if, because of one man's trespass, death reigned through that one man, much more 
much more will those who receive the abundance of grace, a garden full of grace, and the free gift of righteousness, much more will they reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ. Amen? Amen. Pray with me if you would.